Listening to the IRE Radio podcast, IRE with you on your beat for 40 years. I'm Sean Shinneman, and this week we're trying something a little different. We're taking a break from our reported podcast today to bring you audio from a conversation between legendary investigative reporter Bob Woodward and former Washington Post executive editor Leonard Downey Jr. The panel took place in 2009 at the IRE conference in Baltimore. The two covered media failures, the editor reporter relationship, We talked about what dinner with Al Gore is like. They're funny and insightful, and we really hope you like it because we have more incredible audio like this that we'd love to share with you on the podcast in the future. The first voice you'll hear is Woodward, who starts this clip with a discussion about a screw-up, specifically the soft reporting by The Post on claims of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. This goes back to uh, a subject that uh, you and I have discussed only briefly, uh, and I wish we had discussed it more, and that is why we or I at the Washington Post didn't get to the bottom of uh, no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, I've written this in uh, one of my four books on Bush, but... I had three sources who told me that the evidence of WMD in Iraq was much skimpier than Bush and Cheney were saying. And uh, Walter Pincus, another reporter Mm -hmm. at the Post, and I conferred. We talked to the national security editor on the national desk. We were going to write a story. And uh, Walter did write a story that ran on a... 27 somewhere, or so, somewhere inside the A section. That's right, that I contributed to that raised some questions, but not. I actually drafted a story that was much harder. And uh, what I have always been uh, kind of rethinking and uh, actually being introspective about why you had an open door policy as, at the editor of, of the Post. I walked in all the time. And in this case, I did not. I didn't come and ask you, you know, I've got this. What do you think we should do? Why was there that breakdown? Right. Uh, this is obviously something that I've been thinking about for a long time, too, and frequently get asked about. Let me set the context a little bit. Uh, first, there was 9-11. Uh, I think there was a sense on the American public's part that those of us in the big news media were um, uh, had some sort of sense of patriotism. You didn't buck the administration. That wasn't so. Uh, obviously, there was a lot to cover uh, that um, uh, probably fell into the uh, uh, thinking of the administration because that was part of our job was to reflect what was going on there. Uh, and it became clear to me at a certain point um, that uh, the administration was heading towards a war in Iraq as well as what they were doing in Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, Bob, uh, Bob's reporting has shown to him uh, that the president really didn't make up his mind for a long time. But I think he was leaning in that direction pretty hard. And clearly, the vice president and others in the administration very much wanted to go to war, as Bob has shown us in the books he's written uh, on this subject. So my focus at the time, among many other things that were going on, obviously, we were covering the war in Afghanistan. 
Uh, we were covering the uh, um, uh, other aspects of the aftermath of 9-11. We were doing a lot of investigative reporting about failures of the CIA, failures of the FBI, failures of the air uh, safety system, and so on, if you recall all those things going on at the time. And also we were focused on, I was focused on trying to make clear to our readers that even though the administration kept saying it was undecided about what to do about Iraq, they seemed to be heading in the direction of going to war. The other context that was interesting to important to remember is that um, uh, everyone, including other countries, uh, intelligence services had, had, had surmised at least that uh, 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 Saddam had weapons of mass destruction in part because he wanted us to believe that, if you recall. He stupidly thought that if he convinced uh, the rest of the world that he could attack somebody with weapons of mass destruction, i.e. Israel nearby, uh, that that would keep uh, other countries from invading him, which was a, a miscalculation on his part. So I was very focused on that, and I was aware of the fact that uh, Walter in particular and Bob were, uh, were, were surfacing some doubters about this conviction that he had weapons of mass destruction. We were not talking about named people, obviously. We're not talking about people that said, I have proof that he does not have weapons of mass destruction. As Bob said, they were concluding that the evidence was thin. They had questions about the evidence. And we did publish actually several stories about it, but I didn't put a single one of those stories on and, page and one. Actually, I wrote a, a story that was on the front page before the war saying that there's no smoking gun right. intelligence that Iraq has WMD. Right. And uh, what I criticized myself for and our process mm -hmm. at the Post, when you write there's no smoking gun evidence, that means there's no hard evidence, there's no right. proof. It means there's soft evidence. And when uh, we are on the verge of going to war, you want, obviously, the evidence to be hard. And I think one of the remedies here for a large news organization that has this is the Post still does this investigative capacity is for the editors and reporters to get together and ask, what are the unanswered questions? Because I know if I'd come to you and said, look, I've got this and we're writing stories saying there's no smoking gun intelligence, you would have said, okay, get on that. We're going to, you know, what do we know? Let's, let's list uh, the data we have. Let's kind of mobilize. And uh, we failed to mobilize on that. Yeah. And I, I uh, would it have made any difference? I don't know. I think there right. was a momentum to, to war. But I have always felt that on that key unanswered question, uh, our process and particularly in my case, my aggressiveness failed. Well, it, it does, you talked about the process. There are layers to a large newsroom uh, that uh, can- Too many. Yeah, too many layers sometimes. I, I, this, I think that was also the case, I don't know how many of you recall this, um, the uh, original savings and loan crisis in the 80s, I think. Yes. Try to remember the exact time. There was the, one in the 60s, too. Yeah, before. right. The one in the 60s was one I actually one of the, was one of the, well, I actually did a little reporting at the end of that. But um, the, uh, the, the savings and loan crisis, uh, we had a reporter on our financial staff who was doing some very interesting early stories, raising some questions about the health of savings and loans in our area and to some extent the national supervision of them. And again, we did not, it was part of our coverage, it was in the newspaper, but we didn't mobilize 
in the way that Bob said we often do mobilize, the way we mobilize, for instance, on the CIA secret prisons or on, on Walter Reed or a number of other things that uh, Bob did over the years. Uh, it, it, uh, it, I think the lesson for uh, editors in the room is to always have your antenna up as high as possible and to be alert to things that are not fitting the direction you're going in right now that somebody brings in. It's a, it's a distraction, frankly. It can feel like a distraction. It can feel like it's trying to pull you off what you're focused on. You must pay attention to those things and see if they need to be looked into. And for reporters, it is stay in the face of your editors. As Bob said, whenever he's been in my face or whenever one of our other investigative reporters, James Grimaldi comes to mind, has been in my face, uh, we, we mobilize and we make sure that we're either doing that story or fi figuring out that there's a good reason why it's not a story at all. And, and too much of the news gets on automatic pilot mm -hmm. in, a, in a way. I did, I, you know, one of the questions uh, Len and I drove up from Washington this morning and risked our lives on the Beltway in Route 95. And uh, we were talking about the question, what do we miss and why? And because uh, we know what we have, yes. but we don't know what we miss. And I uh, remember four years ago uh, winding up having dinner with uh, Al Gore, Clinton's former vice president. And uh, dinner with Al Gore is unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. There's just nothing fun right. about it. I've had lunch with Al Gore and it's the same thing. Yeah. I, I, it, <laughs> but he does eat. Yeah, he does eat. He manages and to eat and talk at the same and time. I, I suspect breakfast is the same. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's just, he was a journalist, so he thinks he knows all yeah. everything about journalism. And he was uh, this was 2005, and he was critical of the first two books I'd written about Bush. Why don't you come out about Bush? Why don't you come out uh, against the war? And we then, after lots of uh, back and forth, it was not really very enjoyable. We got to the interesting question of how much do we know about what goes on in a White House contemporaneously? And so, I, you know, you were vice president for eight years. You were there. What percentage of what went on in the Clinton White House for those eight years that's interesting or of consequence do we now know? And Gore right away said, one percent, and I died. And I admit to having a, an unclean thought, which was, is it possible there are that many women we don't know about? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't say that. And then I said, uh, asked, well, suppose you wrote a tell-all memoir, and of course, Gore got on his high horse and, and oh, I never would do that. I would just suppose you did. Then what percentage would we know? Two percent. <laughs> now, this is the question. You know, do I think we probably, if you look at the Clinton administration, know 60 to 70 percent, uh, probably not higher. Uh, and uh, the only way to deal with this in as investigative reporters or editors reporters is to develop a rigorous method to talk to people, interview people, uh, seek documents, seek contemporaneous notes. If uh, in the case of the Iraq war, after the war, 
uh, was launched in March of 2003. You may recall I said I wanted to do a book on how and why, and you said, take a year and we'll do a series in the Post about how and why we went to war. And it was the second Bush book I did, Plan of Attack. And uh, I spent nine months interviewing people who took notes, had documents, up the information chain, assistant secretaries, cabinet officers, and compiled a 21-page memo that I sent to President Bush. And a lot of uh, our colleagues at the Post said, you sent George Bush a 21-page memo? You finally have lost your mind. And one said, don't you know from his biography all the evidence is that in his years at Andover, Yale, and Harvard Business School, he never read anything that long. <laughs> what makes you think he'll start now? And he did, but he, he did. read it. and uh, it was about I, him. I, yes, exactly. It was about him. And uh, I interviewed him for three and a half hours and asked, uh, I mean, somebody, how many, and when you interview a sitting president on a war decision that he realized was important, how many questions do you think I got to ask in three and a half hours? One. Somebody said one. That would be if, that, if it was Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually might be a high number. <laughs> uh, I asked Bush 500 questions. He gave short, direct answers. Mm -hmm. And you took the, uh, I remember I gave you the manuscript draft, and you took it and had some, uh, some suggestions and ideas. And we ran a five-part series. Mm -hmm. uh, and it takes you closer to what happened because of the method. On our next episode, IRE contributor Shelby Mann talks to the Willamette Week's Nigel Jaquis. He used to trade crude oil on Wall Street. He worked for Goldman Sachs, worked for Morgan Stanley, and then decided to become a journalist and is now winning all kinds of awards, like the Pulitzer, for instance, and bringing down public officials. I got a uh, tip that the governor, his assistant, had asked the state to delete his emails, and, and that just caused a real firestorm. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, shoot us an email. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast and can be reached at web at ire.org. Additional editing on this podcast was done by IRE's George Varney. You can reach me at Sean S. That's S-H-A-W-N-S at ire.org. If you like the episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. That's it for this one. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Sean Chinnaman. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that a little bit. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.